Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement, it's part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. To paraphrase biomechanist Dr. Stuart McGill, many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you the chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout during your commute, workout, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60-plus minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH highlights people, locally-owned businesses, and events in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that understand that movement, it's part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody that you think we should interview? Then drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com or connect with us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, both at underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome to another edition of Moving to Live, the podcast for fitness, exercise, and movement professionals and amateur aficionados. We're here to bring you interviews that give two groups of people information. Group number one is those people who work as professionals and maybe want to pick somebody's brain or hear ideas, and it's a couple months or maybe even a year before you could get to a conference or you heard somebody speak at a conference and you wish you could hear more information from them. This is the opportunity where you get that. The other group of people we're going after is the amateur aficionados, whether you moonlight as a personal trainer or a strength coach, but you've got another real job and you don't get the opportunity to go to conferences, or if you're a parent or somebody who needs to learn more so that your kid can have a healthy experience, our interviewee today is the person who can help answer some of these questions. Our interviewee today is Rick Howard. Rick is going to give us his 30-second uh, intro bio as far as what all of his jobs are because he filled out his bio, and it looks like he is wearing many hats. Uh, he is a specialist in dealing with young children, and he is one of the co-authors of the recent National Strength and Conditioning Association long-term ath athletic development paper, which is a template for how young athletes should be trained so that they don't get to be late teenaged athletes or early 20 athletes and be completely burned out or injured. So Rick, thank you for taking time for joining Moving to Live this afternoon. Ben, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. So before we get into a little bit more about how you arrived at where you are now, he is a doctoral candidate at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professionals. I interviewed Rick a few weeks ago for the Strength and Conditioning Journal's uh, Youth Athlete Special Edition, and he proudly told me at that time he had just become a doctoral candidate. So again, Rick, congratulations on that. But what exactly do you do for a living right now? And I know it's a many hats. 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And often people ask me that. I'm like, well, you can't really put it into one basket. I teach at two different universities in their exercise science or health and exercise science departments, however they label them. So essentially, I'm teaching the NSDA Essentials of Strength Training and Conditioning course. Uh, one of them is more of a comparative analysis where one of them is strictly out of that textbook. I also teach uh, nutrition classes, kinetic anatomy classes. I'll teach whatever they ask me to teach, essentially. But it works really well because I also am the fitness director at the Wilmington Country Club in Wilmington, Delaware, where I have an opportunity to train adults of all ages, as well as work with several groups of kids. They have an outstanding rackets program, including tennis. So I'm able to work with a lot of their kids, either after school, on weekends, throughout the summer. Uh, we created a program for kids to be able to come in and use the fitness center of different ages and abilities. So it's kind of helped to put the three all together. I'll have interns that will come from both of the universities to help out at the fitness center. It helps me to see what kids know and understand as students at the university, what they might be lacking when they get out in the field. And that helps me in the classroom to be sure I share those things that they're going to know, they're going to need to know once they get out in the field. And then the other side of it is I teach similar classes in Iceland at the Kaler Health Academy for personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches. So it's a very good way to look at what's not happening only here in the U.S., but even in Europe and internationally. So it gives a really good comparison of all the different areas, what we can do better, and what we're doing really well with. What I think is interesting that you hit on, which you probably didn't realize, I was actually discussing this with another person I was interviewing a few weeks ago, is you mentioned you teach in a program or whatever the universities call it. And for people who are maybe undergraduate students or people who are trying to find something for their kids to go to school for, you hit on the fact that the exercise science or sports medicine or kinesiology the name of the program actually depends on what the school is. So just out of curiosity, the two schools you teach at, what do they actually call those departments? Uh, one calls it exercise science and the other calls it health and exercise science. So those two are pretty similar, but you're absolutely right. And I remember when I went to school, kinesiology was a new huge word. So everybody had to have that in it. Now it's like sports performance has to be in there somewhere to be able to attract students to want to come to their university. And just as a, as a third one, I teach in a program that's exercise science and sports studies. The sound you're hearing on the back is Rick's dog. You probably at some point will hear my dogs growling and wrestling. Uh, we try to make this quite casual. And Rick, if you could talk a, oops, if you could talk a little bit more about how did you get involved in Iceland and are these post high school students that you teach in Iceland? And how do you get there? Is this online or do you go there periodically? Uh, actually, that's a great question, too, and I'm really excited to be able to go there. I get to go every year now. Uh, their program is what they refer to as blended, which means most of it is online, but then they do have some opportunity for hands-on and actual teaching up at their school. I got involved in this whole process by uh, actually through Robert Linkle, who's a mutual friend of ours, who was invited up there to do presentations, and then he was invited back up, and they wanted somebody to come along with them, and he nicely recommended that I come along. The director of the program apparently looks at Google ratings. So I guess my Google rating was uh, strong enough with different research projects, articles, recognition, etc. that he said, sure, he asked him if he'll come along. So I went up there. Actually, we just did presentations. So after the presentation, the director of the program asked if I'd be interested in teaching classes. And I said, absolutely. 
So uh, this is my third year, I think, doing that. I just came back at the end of last month from being up there for a couple of weeks. There are two different classes I was teaching. And is this something for students getting the equivalent of a bachelor's degree or a master's degree? I know it's slightly different in European countries than in, in the United States. It is slightly different. Many of them finish their high school a little bit later, almost age 19. And then they have opportunities either to go to university or to go to different programs. Their university doesn't really have that much in terms of exercise science. So a lot of the students who want to become personal trainers or strength coaches can go through this program, which would probably parallel more of our associates program here in the States. It's partially funded by the Icelandic government, the University of Reykjavik, which is the capital of Iceland, uh, corporate business interests, et cetera, to give students these opportunities. My students there have ranged in age from 19 up to about 53 or 54. So some of them, it's what they know they want to do. For others, it's a, a new career. And for some others, they have careers already, and this is something that they're very interested in and want to figure out how to integrate it into their schedule. They want to have as many jobs as I do, I suppose. And would it be fair to say, not in a negative manner, but in a practical manner, that this is more of a vocational training than the typical exercise training in the United States where somebody comes out with a bachelor's degree? Uh, it's more focused, really. You don't have to take uh, all the other classes that our undergrads have to take. It's as if you just take the courses that are required in your major. So they have the same science we do. They have the same program design we do, the same strength and conditioning principles and foundations that we do. They just don't have to take electives. Okay, so very... So they've done it two years rather than going for four. I also want to touch a little bit on the fact that you are a doctoral candidate at Rocky Mountain. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to give your age, just to say that Rick is significantly above the age of what you would think of as the typical doctoral student, but it's just an idea of showing that just because you get in the field, you graduate from college, or you get a master's degree, you're never done learning whether you pursue a formal degree or not. So if you could talk a little bit about your experiences with Rocky Mountain University of Health Science or Health Professions, I'm sorry. Okay, no worries. I actually love to talk about Rocky Mountain. I'm, I'm probably one of their biggest fans in terms of the program. I think it was really interesting that uh, the major at the time I entered the university is called health promotion and wellness, which are two terms that most people in our industry shun to some degree. It's like uh, wellness. It's one of those fancy kumbaya kind of words. But the more I've thought about it, the more it's actually impacted my studies on children and adolescents, but also all across age populations to see what we're missing in our training programs. So I found that very interesting. And it, this is a blended program also. So some of the courses were done strictly online, whereas others, like two times a year, the campus is in Utah, in Provo. So two times a year, we would actually go out to Provo. We would have six days of intense studies. So we'd have three courses per term. So we'd have two intense days for each class where we'd go through. But it's a cohort model. So there were students who were within health promotion and wellness and also in athletic training. We went through several of the courses that were combined for both disciplines. So I've met and uh, maintained several friends over the course of my time there that are lifetime friends, and we keep in touch and communicate on a regular basis. We set up a Facebook page, which is a lot of fun. So, you know, the typical things that college students will do so we could moan and complain about some assignment or some project or whatever. But it's really, really been an excellent journey. And, and you're right, I was definitely not the Doogie Hauser of the class. We had a young man, I think he's in his mid-20s, who was the youngest, and I'm uh, – more than twice that, so that'll give a hint of my age. So I am significantly older, 
probably older than some of the professors. And it was interesting because in the beginning of the classes, they often ask you, why are you here? What is your goal? And for most students, it's, well, because I want to get a permanent position in a university. Yeah, I'd be happy with that, too. But that wasn't my primary goal. It's I had an opportunity in my life, time-wise, that I could get it done. It's about, let me just go ahead and do it. So I did it because I wanted to. So I was probably a little bit more motivated, I think, than some of the other students. Because there was, it was an intrinsic motivation for me. I did it because I wanted to, not because it would get me a certain position. So I, I think because of that, I had a little bit more interest, although I wasn't really excited about health promotion or wellness as topics initially, but I've been able to figure out how to integrate those into everything I'm doing. And they did a really wonderful job of allowing me within my research and within different projects that I would complete. You can focus on your area and then apply whatever you're talking about to that. So if we're talking about wellness, how does wellness actually impact training kids? So it's pretty neat. And I'm assuming with your specializations, your dissertation or project is going to focus on wellness in kids? Uh, very similar to that, yes. So I'm at that stage where I have uh, my prospectus approved. I'm, I'm putting the rest of the information together to try to get that uh, up and going. My intent is to collect data this fall and have it all finished by uh, the end of the year. So, yeah, my project is taking from NSDA Strength and Conditioning Journal at the end of 2015. They put together a paper that was like key um, identifiers for the back squat. So what was the descent, the ascent, what were things you would look for, things you wouldn't look for. So I have two groups. One is pre-peak height velocity, which means they haven't reached maturity yet. The other group is post-peak height velocity, so they are physically mature. It's just one of the easiest field measures to see if kids have reached maturity or not. So then in each of those groups, we're going to figure out, does this test hold to be valid and reliable? So does it measure what it says it measures? So back squat measuring, lower body strength, essentially. And is it reliable? Uh, so there are three different uh, researchers who will get together and see if we can get similar scores for all students. So we'll look at that for both populations. And then we're going to compare it to their fitness. So what type of fitness levels do they have? And then also to their sports participation. So we'll see if there's any correlations, which you know, isn't the highest level of study, but it's interesting for a first study, I think, to see if there's a correlation between their performance on an exercise and actually how they do in terms of fitness and in sports. And you and I were chatting a little bit before we recorded about how some people sometimes say, well, all, all people with doctorates do is they just do research and you know it's not really practical in the field. You clearly work in the field, and if somebody asks you who works in the field who maybe didn't take the time or didn't have the opportunity to go on and pursue a little bit more education said, well, what's your study going to mean? How's it going to help me when I coach my youth soccer team? What would your answer to them be? Yeah, that's a, a good question too. And I think the, the primary answer is, well, uh, I was taught this when I was an undergraduate. One research study doesn't prove anything. So, you know, on that level, it's not going to show anything, but it's going to show that at least within this population, uh, maybe the back squat is a nice, easy assessment for a coach to take a look at with their athletes or non-athletes. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a youth athlete. But if we can get kids in a proper position for squatting, we know that will help them want to be more physically active throughout their life course, which would be a huge implication if we could show that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if we get really good results here that, you know, just because a kid squats well, he's going to be here, she'll be a great athlete. But it shows us that maybe this is a nice field measure for coaches to use, especially coaches who work with larger groups. Some of the kids I work with in the summer, they're in a relatively large group. And if I have something that I can put together to assess them at that point in time and say, you know what, 
if we see a lot of knee valgus, it really means something to us. You know, if our knees are caving in when we go into the descent or ascent, it really means something to us in terms of our programming that as a coach we can instantly put in there for kids, then I think that's somewhat important. And as a single test for doing a quick functional assessment, it's much more applicable or easier to do if you have large groups of kids. Absolutely. And, and you know, the other side of that, you mentioned functional. There are all these different measurement tools that are available out there. Uh, Summers said that they will predict injury and predict athletic performance. And so I think the other I like to be able to, to share here is that, no, they won't. So, you know, tests are just a snapshot of that particular day. They show us where we are right now. And I think coaches need to recognize that because too often they get caught up in this notion that, you know, I have a, an eighth grader who has a 27-inch vertical jump. You know, I got to get this uh, verbal commitment. I have to have a verbal letter of understanding that uh, the student's going to commit to a top-level school because they're at a good level right now. We don't know, for example, if that kid has peaked or not. So in this study, we'll know that the eighth graders actually hit maturity, and that might be as high as their vertical jump ever gets. So to predict that they're going to be an all-pro or an all-star just because they're at that level in eighth grade still really doesn't tell us anything. We really need a lot more information to be able to put together where we can go. And as an N of one, when I was seven years old in uh, youth soccer, recreational soccer, I was unstoppable. It was all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I appreciate that you're you're willing to be able to share that story. I was the opposite end of the spectrum, so I didn't really peak maturity-wise. I am the classic late mature. I hit my peak height velocity somewhere between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college. I ran the, it was, back then it was the 400-yard dash in high school, and I was actually one of the fastest kids around, but they would see me out on the line. I was clearly much shorter than they, and so they often felt that I would be an, an easy victory, but, you know, it's the, once I got taller and faster, so I'm, I'm that kid that if you could keep those kids going, the ones who might not get those opportunities, gosh, the, the research usually indicates that it's those late matures who come barnstorming on in somewhere later in high school and do a great job. So I think it's important to look at both sides of that, the early matures and the late matures and everybody in between. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, Michael Jordan didn't play varsity basketball until his junior year in high school. He actually was a late mature. So, yeah, absolutely right. And uh, Tom Brady was a late mature. And they, they show a lot of this information that, you know, these are kids that if they hadn't been given the opportunity to nurture themselves, you know, some of these uh, seventh and eighth grade all-star coaches would have said, you know, what, they'll never play again. And it might have turned them completely off of sports which makes it no surprise that 70% of kids drop out of sports by the time they're 13 years old. So clearly one of your main interests is working with children, currently a doctoral student and doing research directed towards that. How did you get there when you went to college? Where did you get your undergraduate degree? What was it in? Where did you get your master's degree? And kind of as a second question or a follow-up to that, when you finished your master's degree, what did you anticipate you'd be doing when you're the age you are now? Hmm. Uh, well, both of those answers are completely different from where I am. So I, I like to share that with my students and with all the, the people I train as well. Because I first started off, when I was in high school, I loved math. I wanted to be a math major. I had six years of math in high school. In fact, uh, everybody's favorite math teacher in our high school for providing those opportunities for us just recently passed. And it turns out he's much younger than we thought he was. But he gave us these opportunities to take calculus in high school, which a lot of schools have. But our school is pretty small. It was down the Jersey Shore. So we didn't have all the opportunities that other schools did. 
So I started off at a school as a math major and realized as a late mature, I was also uh, very socially, emotionally immature as well. So I was not ready for college. So I lasted about a month, came back home. Uh, nobody in my family had ever graduated college before, so there was no expectation that I would. But I was determined, and I came back and I said, you know, I need a really large school. So if I decide I want to change my major, I can't. And the thing I enjoyed the most when I was at this small school was they didn't have a football team, so I tried out for their soccer team. I wasn't terrific, but I was uh, good enough to be able to, to play because we played soccer all summer long to get in shape for football. And which so which which school was this? Uh, Stevens Institute of Technology up in Hoboken, New Jersey. So what was the degree you graduated from from Stevens? Well, I never, that's the school I dropped out. Oh, that, I'm sorry. I came back. Oh. And then yeah, you yeah, ca- I left, came back and I said, I want this really large school. I know Stevens was in Hoboken, so we would take the train over into New York City a lot. I'm like, I really like the city stuff, and I really like the sports and physical activity part. So I decided I would find a school where I could be do something related to being physically active. And, you know, back then we didn't know much about a lot of different majors and programs. So I, I started off in the physical education teaching program at Temple University in Philly. So uh, it took me a while to get out. I, I changed from the teaching approach to actually I discovered exercise science. And a lot of the professors in exercise science were of the mindset that you really shouldn't be in this major because you're never going to make a whole lot of money. You know, I, I never went to school to make a whole lot of money anyway, but I, I thought that was kind of odd they would speak that way. I'm like, you can make money doing anything if, if you really put your mind to it. So I, I stayed in that major. One of the opportunities that I had from that was to be able to see a lot of the student athletes in Philadelphia who seemed to have really good skills, natural skills, but they never really seemed to get the training they need. And it kind of fascinated me that we didn't have a level playing field for a lot of the kids who are playing competitive sports. I noticed some of the kids who are more in the suburbs, that was around the time where uh, United Sports Training Center in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, opened up huge facility with all these outside and inside soccer fields, lacrosse fields, all these different opportunities. Kids in Philly didn't even know what lacrosse was, essentially. It hadn't really been introduced as a sport. It wasn't part of their extracurricular program. So I was fortunate enough that being in Philadelphia, I got to know the person who was the head of health and physical education who ended up taking over the whole office of sports. They were in the same department in the school district for a number of years. I got to work there. So under her, I got to be able to go out and, and see all these different places and to be able to help create programs. So can I help with this or create that? And they said, sure. So basically, I was responsible for overseeing strength and conditioning for all the different schools in Philly. And they had all different configurations. Some of them had some uh, pneumatic devices, old-fashioned Kaiser piston equipment that they would use. Some had very little equipment at all, maybe two or three pairs of dumbbells. Others had these really big, like Signo would every year donate equipment to this one high school. They had a pretty nice facility. So we would get the kids in those programs, and they actually created an academy for students who were interested in health and fitness to learn all about how to get a job in the field. So they learn all about heart rates and blood pressure, essentials of programming, essentials of exercise, and then they would do internships. So I had an opportunity uh, at one point in time that I'd worked in hotels and, and managed their fitness centers to actually bring those kids in to mentor and, and learn all about that kind of stuff. So everything kind of came together through all of that process where I said, you know what, I really want to figure out how am I going to help kids with different levels have the same opportunities. 
So what you're doing today, everybody looks at what you're doing and probably says, if they're relatively young in their career, well, I want to do what Rick does. But what you're doing today is a result of a number of years of networking opportunities and taking advantage of something that probably you had to do or not had to do, but did without getting reimbursed for it. So it's kind of like, do you want to do this? We can't pay you. And you said, sure. Sure. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I think that's actually a hindrance in our field. There are so many coaches who, who are so dedicated and they want to do the right thing. And they either think that they have to have that dream job right now, or sometimes it's the other way where the schools say, well, you have to prove your worth and we'll have you out here for a couple of years, but we're not going to pay you. I think there has to be a really good balance there that you know, what, are, what your worth is accommodated for. So that if you are going out on these opportunities, that you are being at least enumerated in some way for what you're doing, other than say, well, if you get the experience and we like you well enough, well, maybe we'll consider giving you a position. So I think both sides of those coins exist, but I, I agree with you that it really is about the relationships. It's about the people you get to know, the opportunities that flow from that, and how you're able to use that. And you know, I still keep in touch with a lot of the people that I've been working with over the years where they are and where I am. And it's really fascinating to see how it really has evolved into where I am now. And we want to transition a little bit into with the networking, the importance of professional organizations. And I'm not saying this because I'm an active member of the NSCA or I know you are also, but just because I firmly believe, and I was taught this in my undergrad, that the strength of your professional abilities in a professional organization is being a part of an organization and being able to give back. So you are clearly very involved in strength and conditioning for young athletes, high school and, and younger. And within the past year, the NSCA published the long-term athletic development paper. If you can talk a little bit about how you had the opportunity to become involved with that and what exactly the long-term athletic development model is. Sure, I'd be happy to it. I have to go back a little bit in time when I was an undergrad at Temple. My advisor was Dr. Richard Berger, who is the man back in the early 60s when he was in Illinois. He was kind of credited with the 1RM concept. He did a lot of testing of basically college athletes or, or college students, more or less, at that time to be able to kind of identify how much weight they should be able to lift, kind of normative data for 1RMs for college students. And so he was very involved with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. American College of Sports Medicine, I think, is uh, the other association that a lot of college students are involved with. I'm still involved with as well. But through all of that, I, I kind of had that affinity. And he signed up. There was a project we worked on. And this was back when the National Conference was in Philadelphia back in 1993. He uh, called me up and said, congratulations, the poster you submitted was accepted and you're presenting it at the National Conference. I'm like, Really? What, what posters exactly? So he shared the one we've been on and he submitted it, thought it was pretty cool. So he showed me how all these professionals in the field, like Bill Kramer and Mike Stone, they would all show up at the poster presentation. He goes, they'll lob you softball questions, meaning they're not going to try to trick you. They're just going to say, where did you get your subjects? Or how, how do you feel this study is important? And I'm like, wow, there is all the people that you saw in your textbooks at the school were actually right there having conversations with you. So you, like you said, being involved in these organizations gives you contacts and relationships and the ability to know that these people really just love the profession too and they just want to share as much as they can. And I've always tried to emulate that. Like, you know, when anybody wants to talk about strength and conditioning or training youth or anything, I am more than happy 
to have that conversation because I don't want to be that one person in the field and say, well, you know, everybody's great except for Rick. He won't talk to anybody. You know, there's no reason for that. So through those conversations, I was able to, um, at one point in time, I had a nice conversation when I first created the Youth Special Interest Group within the NSCA. Uh, NSCA, like other organizations, has special interest groups for those who are in a common field or field of interest. So it was one specifically for high school, but it didn't really look at youth from a low age on. So I was able to put that together and figure out what that might look like. And from that point in time, we were able to put that together. I met with Dr. Avery Fagenbaum, who, who came on to our, our initial board, which I thought was fantastic, sharing different ideas. So through different articles and conversations and having that put together, when it came time to do an LTAD position statement, we actually took it to the uh, research committee of NSCA, and they said, well, you know what, we really don't think there's enough evidence for a position statement. You know, a position statement is when an organization takes a stand on a topic and said, this is what we feel and believe based on the evidence. So they said we could do an invited review. So we said, fine. So we went and did that, and that turned out to be almost a 60-page document. So after we put that together, they said, all right, we think there's enough evidence to move forward to put the position statement together. So uh, Dr. Rodri Lloyd from the UK, who actually is my, uh, Dr. Begenbaum, Dr. Lloyd are my uh, co-chairs of my committee for my dissertation. So the two of them helped put the paper together along with uh, an all-star cast that I'm very proud to be a part of to put the long-term athletic development position statement together. And in a nutshell, long-term athletic development, which is usually referred to as LTAD, some people call it LTAD, is a process that in, in the American culture, we want to win by Friday. So everything is about how do we get the maximum performance right now. But what we find is, is for these youngsters, they often will either be overtrained, overworked, or just too stressed out to actually want to continue. So we wanted to create an approach that says that the best way for kids to get through childhood and adolescence and be active for a lifetime is to break that down into the developmental appropriateness of the age where they are. So they should only be doing that amount of work, that amount of training throughout that developmental period of time that matches where they are rather than increasing those expectations as if they're going to be an Olympian at age 10. So that's kind of the, the context in which we develop the paper. In essence, creating not just athletes immediately, but also people who are active and experience wellness throughout the continuum of the lifespan. Yeah, so that's where the uh, health promotion and wellness came back in. I'm like, ah, so it does make sense that that's cool. For kids, we talk in sports as that vehicle, because kids love sports. And, and, you know, it's a shame when you hear the data that says that kids are participating in sports less than ever before because we have so made it an adult concept that a lot of what we wanted this paper to show is, you know, the old maxim that kids are not miniature adults is true. So we often share the, the example, like, does anybody know how Little League Baseball started? And most people actually don't, which I find fascinating, because Little League Baseball was created in Brighton, Pennsylvania, by an uncle who had his three nephews visit him. None of the kids knew anything about baseball. So like, all right, so what did they do? Did they set it up so that three kids could learn proper hitting, running the bases, different strategies, techniques, maybe have like the old classic field day, you know, where they would say, all right, can you hit the ball and can you actually do it accurately and for distance? You know, we only look to see the kids that are hitting home run. I don't know if you saw the article that was out uh, not too long ago that shared that these two high school kids could hit massive 400-foot home runs, but they couldn't play throw and catch. 
they never learn the fundamental motor skills that are so important to long-term success. So in an effort to make our kids really do well in one sport, which we refer to as early sports specialization, we lost the kid's ability to actually learn how to be athletic. And since they couldn't be athletic and possess those skills, uh, fundamental motor skills and muscle strength, they were really limiting their opportunities to do well. So they become a baseball player at the age of eight without developing the athletic skills to progress as a baseball player and possibly pick up other activities when they hit puberty. Exactly. And we were talking about with the early mature or late mature, if that happens to be an early maturing kid, you know, maybe by the time he or she is 12 or 13 years old, they're no longer at the top. So all of a sudden they find themselves getting cut from that baseball program, which is tough for them developmentally because they haven't learned anything else. And they find statistically that those kids don't do anything after that. If they get cut from the program, they choose not to participate in any sport. They don't say, well, hey, you know what, I'll go learn soccer. That was what they knew. That's their identifier with sports. Same thing with parents. You know, parents identified themselves as a soccer dad or a baseball mom. So that was their whole social set. So once that goes away, they're devastated, too. So we try to get away from that whole notion where we think that, uh, going back to Jan Cote, who's now in Canada, came up with this sampling model where kids should be able to sample many, many different sports and activities throughout childhood and adolescence so that by the time they reach maturity, they can pick the ones that they want to focus on. And they don't have to be the ones that we as adults tell them that they should focus on. You know, sometimes kids will go through that growth spurt and all of a sudden gymnastics really isn't the best choice anymore. Or they don't grow anymore and basketball no longer is that best choice either. So we have to watch a lot of that. The interesting thing, I would never claim to have been a great high school athlete, but I grew up in a small upstate New York uh, town and my father told me when I was in junior high, you can play one sport. And at that point in time, I was a big soccer aficionado. So I went out for soccer and I played soccer, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. And we got towards the end of soccer season and my dad said, well, you know, it's a small school. You really ought to support the school and play basketball. So I played <laughs> basketball and we got to the end of basketball and he said, well, you know, baseball season's coming up and, you know, they always have trouble getting enough players. You probably ought to play baseball too. So I ended up, not because I was a great athlete, uh, playing three sports in high school because my father in junior high said, you know, you need to support the school so there can actually be teams. And the interesting or surprising thing, you, you hit on the fact of wellness and being able to do something across the lifespan. I play none of those activities now, but run, bicycle, try to do a little longboard skateboarding. So do all activities that I never did. But I have to think that some of that benefited from the fact that I did multiple different activities when I was a kid. Absolutely. And the real key part there, I think, is that your dad supported you, but he also said, what's next? All right, so that, that, you know, that sports season's over. What's next? What are you going to do next? So he really instilled in you the value of physical activity and, and figuring out what's next. So even if you can't continue to play soccer or basketball as you get older, what's next. So there's always something that you can do and you get to make that choice, which is really the best part. So a lot of what we're trying to do with the LTAD context now is to get the information out to parents and coaches and kids and administrators and anybody we can get it in the hands of to recognize that, you know, the support is probably the most important piece. How do you support your kids moving forward without telling them what to do so that, you know, at the end of the day, they say that intrinsic motivation to perform and to do well is what really carries you to the next level. 
I don't know if you saw the study that they did on uh, athletic training journal that for college athletes after their days were done, most of them became as physically inactive as the general population and had the similar injury rate because nobody had told them the why or asked them what's next. So they only identified themselves as that collegiate athlete. And when their time was done, they said, I don't even know what to do. So they, they didn't know where to go next. So, you know, that's, when we see stuff like that, like, that's kind of sad. We really need to encourage all kids all through all stages of development, recognizing that it's not linear, growth's not always in that positive direction. You might have a time where you're not doing as well as you need to. Just keep at it. And if you don't really like that anymore, what's next? Those are great words from Rick Howard. Rick is one of the authors of the NSCA's long-term athletic development paper. We hope this portion or the first part of our interview with him, if you're a professional, you've learned something and realized that you may be a late mature academically or professionally, Rick gives you an example of how you can progress. Rick, you've mentioned a couple times about networking. If somebody's interested in learning more about working with youth, what are a couple of avenues that they can pursue either within the NSCA or other organizations to become involved and work on their networking? Uh, that's a great question, too. And I would certainly recommend uh, most of us are social media savvy at this point in time. Most young professionals say that they use Facebook uh, essentially for communicating with family and some of the other applications out there reserved for other uses. But NSGA has a youth special interest group. They also have a high school special interest group, a college special interest group. So uh, explore some of those groups and find out what you might be interested in finding information about. Ask questions. Find out who's on there. Ask them a question and network that way. I think that's excellent opportunity. The other one, I think, is, is find your state association for all the different groups that are out there uh, and networking and find out which one of those really provide those networking opportunities to get more involved in their organization. So I know that NSA has state meetings every year, so every state is on the state clinic. You can look on the website to find where those are. ACSM does a more regional approach, but you can find out when the regional meetings are and look at those and attend those. Athletic trainers do the same thing. There's just a little bit more regionally based. Uh, physical therapy is actually larger. But look at the different avenues to explore. So each of these groups is now very, very interested in training youth correctly and figuring out what to do. More internationally, you can look at groups like Canadian Sport for Life, who created their own long-term athletic development model. They do a lot of work with physical literacy up there. They have wonderful information that's free that you can use. So they have conferences that they put on, too. So you just look at CS4L, the Canadian Sport for Life, or Google Canadian Sport for Life. A lot of their information will show up, too. So a lot of really great uh, organizations to get involved with. You can always reach out to me. I'd be happy to share information as well and point you in the right direction. I know you, like I, am a very active and huge proponent of the NSCA, and you mentioned some of their special interest groups. Most of those have Facebook group pages, and if I'm correct, you do not have to be an NSCA member to join those groups, so it's a great opportunity to see what people are doing, communicate with people, and ask questions. That's correct. Yeah, great, great way to get involved without having to get too involved. You can kind of test the waters, so to speak, to find out you know what people's flavor is, and there are a couple other groups. There's a a National High School Strength Coaches Association that does great work at the high school level. So you can take a look at that if you're interested in the high school performance side. Rick, we're going to come back with you in two weeks and interview you or continue this interview and talk a little bit from the aspect of advice for parents or people who maybe aren't in the profession but work with children and really need to benefit from the knowledge that you have. 
That sounds great. Look forward to it. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, and be notified about a new episode release. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. We're a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Mm -hmm.